0: Ezekiel. We are resuming our series on the book of Ezekiel, uh, Hope for Exiles, and we'll be today moving into chapter 13. Um, We had previously covered the first five verses of chapter 13. I am going to read those to you again during this time, though the sermon for this morning uh, begins at verse 6, so to speak, and and ends at verse 16, so not all the way through the chapter, uh, just uh, 6 through 16, but we're going to begin reading this morning at verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of Yahweh, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing, have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up in the breach into the breaches. Or built up a wall for the house of Israel, that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions, lying divinations. They say, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares Yahweh, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace where there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Speaking of the whitewash. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end, and I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash. Bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall. And upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her where there was no peace, declares the Lord God. And so we continue to confess, as we do every Sunday and throughout our life, that this is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. And so we continue this chapter, Ezekiel's revelation, as it were, of False prophets and their lies. False prophets and their false prophecies. And as I told you before, some of prophecy in the Bible, some of prophecy in the Bible is God has said this will happen in the future. And it's an unveiling, a revelation, a revealing of what is going to happen that was not at all previously known. However, most prophecy in the Old and New Testament is God has already said this in the past, but you are failing to believe him. Okay? Ezekiel has been a mix of both, as we've seen. I would argue that it's more strongly the second one. Really what Ezekiel is saying is, do you remember back in the law when he said, if you do this, namely idolatry and rebellion against him, you're going to be removed from the land? Well, most of what Ezekiel is saying is he's going to keep that promise. Even though you don't believe he's going to keep that promise. And the problem, as I hope you just heard in chapter 13, with these false prophets, false preachers, who are falsely speaking for God, is that they are violating the third commandment. Okay? The third commandment, which is where we'll start this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. So what we're talking about in Ezekiel is God keeping this promise. Right? That's what he's saying to the false prophets. What I said in the third commandment, I'm going to do. That is not hold him guiltless. And so we have in verses six and seven a people, namely their their prophets or their leaders, or if you like their preachers, are lying. They are indeed using God's name. Look at this. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord. They say, declares Yahweh, when Yahweh has not sent them. And yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. So what I want to note at first, they're using the right language. They are dressing up what they have to say in language that Israelites would recognize and otherwise obey. Because if God has spoken, you'd better hear it and obey. There's a lot, a lot, an unimaginable amount of power, if we take it seriously, in saying God has said. Which is why all sin rooted back to that moment in the garden goes back to has God really said or God has not said. And so words and rituals do not constitute truth. Let's just go ahead and clear the table and put that right up front. That they're saying, thus says the Lord, and that is not enough to save them because they're liars. Now, why is this so evil? Why is this so problematic? Why should you care about what somebody says, for instance, today, if they say God has said this and he hasn't, or if they say Jesus has said this or the Spirit has told me this, Any, any one of those is someone speaking for God. Part of the answer is that Christians have always been and continue to be people of a book, right? I mean, it's, it's really one of our most unique and defining features that we really, as it were, gather and constitute ourselves around what God has said by His Spirit in His Word. God is most profoundly and clearly revealed by what He has said, which is if you're if you're not accustomed, maybe if you haven't grown up around Christians and you're sort of not accustomed to kind of the culture that exists within Christian churches, ideally the kind of culture that we want to build is one where if somebody says something and then another person comes alongside them and says, okay, except the word of God says the exact opposite, that our reaction is, oh, well then I'm wrong, okay? Because we believe God most fundamentally has revealed himself by his word. That is the way he has determined to work in the world. Why? I don't know. I don't know, but He has. Right? It is true that we also sing. It is true that we also um, take, take the sacraments together, the Lord's Supper in a little while. Uh, but, but the Lord is most profoundly, most clearly revealed by His words. And so when we continue to preach it to each other, what we're saying in effect is, Behold this God. Know this God. Be washed by this God. Be fed by this God. Be forgiven by this God. And insofar as your example leads others to understand Christianity, you're also saying, Watch this God. Put my old sinful self to death and raise the new man to life again and again and again until my labor is finished. Now, I know if, if you've been here any length of time, you know me well enough, y'all know me well enough to know that I'm going to move here in a direction that addresses false prophets in our present moment. People who speak um, who, who speak and say, thus says the Lord, thus says God. God is saying and God is not saying. And this shows up in lots of different places, but probably one of the most dangerous places are ones who are twisting God's words. So they're taking what's in the book, just to, to put it that way, and twisting it, So that you get God did not say out of seemingly God said. And so I want to say this kind of just parenthetically. Beware the overuse of a very particular approach, which is when someone comes to teaching that is really concerning. Let's just put it that way. Here's the line. Okay, here's the line. The line is, it's fine. Just eat the meat and spit out the bones. Okay, on one level, I get that. I have, for instance, let me give you an example. I have great admiration for Lutheran theologians, even as I disagree with them on baptism and the Lord's Supper and eternal security and particular redemption. Uh, And so I, but, you know, so that's a real short list of a few important things. But I can listen to my Lutheran brothers and sisters and learn things from them and recognize that we disagree on, on some important things, but not things that would end our fellowship. But do you see what I just did there? I specifically listed for you, if we want to say eat the meat and spit out the bones, I listed what some of the bones were. (laughs) I know exactly what the bones are with great specificity. And a lot of times we say, oh, you know what, just eat the meat and spit out the bones, you'll be fine. Well, okay, but if you don't explain that any further, what you're actually saying is, I mean, honestly, I think what you're actually saying is, you know, some of what this person said kind of made me feel funny. So I'm just going to hope that at the same points it makes you feel funny, and when it makes you feel funny, don't listen to that. Which is, as far as discernment goes, that's just some weak sauce. Um, I'm saying if, if you're going to tell people that they should consume teaching or, or or things things of God, things about God that that are, let's say, a bit wonky at best, and if you're going to excuse that by saying just eat the meat and spit out the bones. I would say it's also then wise to adopt a habit of listing all dim bones, <laughs> right? So because a lot of false teaching gets passed under the proverbial radar under this banner, right? Well, just eat the meat and spit out the bones. Well, okay, but what are they, right? So some clarity there would be really, really important and helpful for us, I think. So let's, let's go back to the text then. So you see verses 6 and 7 here declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Now that's really weird. Have you not seen a false vision? So, I mean, to, to go ahead and phrase it as a question, did they see a false vision? And let me just start by saying, no, he is speaking kind of metaphorically there. How do I know that? Because if, I don't have it here, but if you have your Bible open and you just go back up a little bit to... Uh, Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Okay, So, so he's setting it right there. They've seen nothing, but it's pretty common in Old Testament prophetic literature. Sometimes seen and proclaimed are a bit malleable. They kind of fit together. One can be used to mean the other. And so they are proclaiming something they've seen when they actually haven't seen it. Okay, so we're going to start there, and the Hebrew is literally "they have seen the empty divination of a lie." Right. So whatever they've seen has been empty or worthless. So again, to ask the question, you know, is this an actual vision? I would say, if it is, I mean, even though we've got verse three, they've seen nothing. If it is, then it's something demonic. Um, and so this question then comes to the front. I think it's unavoidable by the way this text is worded. Because it says, um, they expect him to fulfill their word. Well, where, where would that expectation come from if they were lying? And so then, this is the question, I think, that comes to the front. Do they know they're lying? Like, do, do the false prophets know they're lying, or have they bought their own lies? As best I can tell, it's a little bit of both. But this is familiar to you, is it not? I mean, have you ever lied about something, Uh, for so long, and it might have been a little thing, but over time, it just kind of integrates into your thinking, and it's really hard to distinguish it from a memory. And at that point, you begin to believe it yourself. It seems to me like something like that is happening with these prophets. There may have been a time where they knew they were lying. If so, that's gone. And even they have started to believe their own nonsense, which is not that hard to believe. Because if you preach nonsense, and everybody around you goes, Yes. Amen. That's great. Yeah, you're going to start to believe it. Just psychologically, that's really hard to fight unless you're uncommonly gifted. This is why it is insufficient. Listen to me. It's insufficient to speak of a person's sincerity as something that should condition our response to false teaching. I'm convinced that most false teachers today do not wake up in the morning saying, Time to fill these people's heads with more lies. I, I think your enemy is a, a bit more careful than that. A bit more sneaky than that, if I can put it that way. And so what, is, what does God say then in the next couple of verses? He says, therefore, says the Lord God, because you've uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you. Okay? He says it again in verse 9. My hand will be against the prophet's who see false visions and give lying, empty divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land. And then there's that repeated phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So God says, my hand will be against you. Interestingly enough, if you can jump over to the next text, the same language is used way back in chapter 1, when Ezekiel is commissioned by God to be a prophet, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So you've got the hand of the Lord for me, upon me, and the hand of the Lord against me, here, or against the false prophets. So there's, there's a bit of probably irony here. One prophet has God's hand for him. The false prophets have God, God's hand against them. Why does God say that then? Why does God use this language? We can go back to it. Why does God use this language of my hand is against them? Probably because by all appearances, it looked like, they were doing pretty well. It looked like uh, I, I, I have to imagine they were they were surrounded by people who wanted to hear more of what they had to say. They probably had the numbers, okay the false teachers, the false prophets. He says, "You will not be counted in the council of my people, nor be on the register i mean this is language of of um, uh, Basically, you're going to be outside of the of the community, right? You're outside and you're not coming back in. When it speaks of a register, if if that register is is the list, sort of a list of Israelites, we've got an analogy of something like that in Ezra chapter two, Nehemiah seven, kind of census lists, and things like that. But also, I think probably we'd be uh, we shouldn't miss an, uh, a parallel here. Uh, in Revelation which speaks of the book of life at the end of all things but just this idea that that even though you are as best you think counted among my people you're actually not and you will not enter the land which is what they were saying that this exile is not going to be a big deal it's not going to be the end we're all going to come back home soon it'll all be okay and the message from the Lord here is basically this is not going to last which is its own encouragement by the way We are impatient, especially when we see evil things or destructive things starting to take root. We get really impatient. In our flesh, we say this has to be dealt with now, right? It's where a lot of lousy legislation comes from when you have a problem that has to be dealt with now, but that's a different chat for a different time. But what the Lord is is saying here is my hand is against them. I know it looks like everything's good with them. My hand is against them. They will not last long. And so this peace that they're proclaiming is actually a a mirage. If you could go to verse 10, please. Precisely because, and by the way, that's emphatic in Hebrew. It's kind of the best we can do in English, but in Hebrew it's like because and because. Okay? So precisely because, because, because they have misled my people saying peace, saying shalom where there is no shalom. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Peace, peace where there is no peace. Actually, that's not why I'm thinking of Malachi. But peace when there is no peace. Shalom where there is no shalom. This is the most common kind of false teaching. To declare peace when there is no peace. And that is, to put it another way, this thing that God has said that troubles you and disturbs you isn't real and can be conveniently ignored. It is difficult, particularly during the month of June, not to want to take a moment to reflect on the primary way a lot of people do this today. That is, they want the church to ignore what God has said about man and woman in marriage. And there will be no shortage of false prophets now or in days to come who obscure the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say and try to shield people from them in the name of niceness and empathy and they will be crying peace where there is no peace. Now, again, parenthetically on that, if all you've got, like if, if the only bullet in... Well, that's a terrible analogy, isn't it? If the only weapon you're bringing to that debate, let's just put it that way, is you know it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve... Right? Let me suggest that you should remain silent. Otherwise, quit your job and try to make it as a comedian. Good luck. Because you're kind of being a joke. And so there, there's, there's, there's intelligent ways to speak to these things, and there's rather unintelligent ways to speak to these things. And by unintelligent, I just mean unhelpful, uh, that are ultimately about like you feeling triumphalistic rather than the word of God being vindicated. And so what, what I mean by that, then, is that Christianity in the West particularly in the West, needs more and more people who understand what the Bible says about the whole of life and perhaps especially right now what it says about being made in the image of God and how when we begin to despise that image and hate that image and rebel against that image and then try to destroy it or obscure it or mutilate it, That the destruction we bring to ourselves is catastrophic. And it should make us grieve long before it makes us smirk. Yeah? But the current chaos that pervades our historical moment is a helpful example of false prophecy uh, because because there are people simply claiming that the Bible doesn't say what the Bible says. To just put put a A real quick summary on that it's it's that sort of false teaching that does something in the midst of God's people and that is it builds a wall let's keep going these people build a wall and they smear it with whitewash okay so then this is the metaphor this wall is the metaphor that Ezekiel uses by the word of the Lord for the rest of our text this morning and I mean if you think about that for a minute John Calvin points out the reason why he uses this metaphor of a wall is because what false prophets do, do is they divide God, they they split God, as it were, putting one side of God, one part of God, on one side of the wall, and one part of God on the other. Translation: uh, God is forgiving and God is love. Amen. Like that's what our Bibles say. Our Bibles say more than that. Right. And so, so Calvin says what false teachers do, they don't invent, strictly speaking, brand new ideas. They just take half of half of God, half of what God has said about himself or about people or about the world and just focus there. I mean, if you think these false teachers who are crying out Shalom, right, Shalom is an entirely biblical concept that God means to give to his people. But they're taking that concept and applying it in a circumstance where God, in a way that God hasn't said. And so, one thing I want you to notice, can we go back actually, I I move forward too quickly. Just back one, please. So these, notice, the people build the wall, interestingly enough. So the people have these, if if I can put it this way, these hopes in their mind. Yes, we're engaged in idolatry. Yes, we're engaged in rebellion. But maybe God won't keep his promises then to what happens to idolaters. These are the people build the wall. But what the prophets do is they try to make it look pretty, try to make it look more believable, try to make it look more approachable and, and common. And I would even say sort of integrated with, with what God's people should say and talk about and believe and confess and so it says, uh, you can keep going then, this, this language of a, a whitewashed wall. The, the word is, is variously translated, uh, if you have a King James or a different kind of translation other than the ESV, you might have plaster or untempered mortar. The idea is it's cheap, okay? Cheap gunk uh, on cheap junk, if you can put it, put it that way. It's just painted over, and if you, man, if you just push that wall a little bit too hard, it's going to cave in. All right, but it but it looks nice when you approach it. And so I mean, think about that for a minute. let's let's just work with that metaphor. This whitewashed wall people have built, the false prophets have painted over. Why? Why give us that visual? Think about what walls do. They protect, and you can also hide behind them. You can be obscured by them. People won't see you if you're behind a wall. So there is false teaching. That makes people feel protected. False teaching like, here's one. If you, your problem is you're not praying the right way. You got to pray the right words and then God will finally hear you. You're not praying emotionally or passionately enough. You're not praying specifically enough. God needs details otherwise he doesn't hear you. You're not praying boldly enough. You've got to have this sort of this this kind of specific emotional quality to your prayers. Listen, the only qualifiers Scripture gives for your prayers is that they be frequent, and that they be totalizing, that is covering all of life. Right? So if something is in your life, it, it qualifies for being prayed about. But but the stuff that says you have to pray this way, with these words, with this emotional intensity, is worldliness, frankly, if not paganism which refuses to give glory to God by trusting in grace alone. Now, when I, when I say, you know, praying with intensity, sure, there are, there are prayers in the Bible and Psalms that have great emotional intensity in them, and certainly that's going to happen in your prayer life, according to God's timing. But this idea that you have to, like, drum up a certain kind of, like, really fiery prayer and then heaven will finally hear you is paganism. Okay? I mean, think of the Lord's Prayer. Is there anything more boring and ordinary? But we don't want to pray that one because it's not exciting enough, right? It is, sorry. <laughs> it's hard to talk about false prophecy without recognizing that there are no shortage of false prophets in our day. They are the ones who usually occupy the television or, I think more commonly now, YouTube. And the last year or so... Listen, the last year or two should be nothing short of a Mount Carmel, prophet of Elijah, prophet of Baal moment for a lot of the false prophets of our day. And I'm talking about the ones who claim to be prophets on TV and YouTube, but never saw COVID coming. When COVID came, they said they were going to blow it away. Spoiler alert, didn't happen. The ones who promised in the name of Jesus that Donald Trump would get reelected. And even as recently as March or April, we're still claiming, no, no, everything's fine. He'll be put back into office. One of these was a man named Robert Henderson. He prophesied Trump would be reelected and then when it didn't happen, claimed it was because of insufficient, insufficiently passionate prayer. Imagine the audacity to make a false prophecy and when it doesn't come to pass, you blame it on the people who were listening to you. You guys just didn't pray hard enough. That's a wolf. We have a word for that. That's a wolf. If someone says, God told me this thing, X thing is going to happen and it doesn't happen, they do not simply need to say, I guess I didn't hear God correctly. They need to repent and be disqualified from any sort of spotlight for a good long while. And we should be honest about the temptations here that accompany this sort of thing. A religious, let's call it, let's call a religious public speaker who was extraordinarily gifted with rhetoric, with, with, with speech, will always be more interesting than the local church, okay? It will always be more thrilling than the local church with some weirdo in a dog collar who hands out congregational surveys for heaven's sake, okay? It's like the stuff on YouTube is always going to be more thrilling than that, I promise, but what do false prophets do? They build walls so that people feel secure. So that they feel hidden. So that they feel protected by the words they want to hear rather than what God has said. This is why in the body of Christ and in the church, accountability, especially for leaders, especially for pastors and elders, is so important. It's so important. So that teachers and pastors and and prophets can be held accountable for their words but let's be real (laughs) i think of a guy like uh like kenneth copeland who holds kenneth copeland accountable right the ministry's named after him (laughs) who do you think stands up to him and i know especially as we're and, and, and look local churches aren't immune to that by the way Local pastors in small contexts can gather enough power and authority that they really become dangerous. So that's the that's reality too. I'm not excluding even myself from that. But I know especially as we're coming out of the COVID crisis, there is a renewed skepticism, a renewed skepticism that gathered worship with the body is really even necessary. I mean, can't you just be a Christian without having to go to church? My new answer to that is Maybe but not for long. Sorry. Maybe, but not for long is my new... And that's not, by the way, let me qualify that a bit. If, if I'm not, uh, my target there is not people who are, are still wrestling with comforts and discomforts, as it, as it were, with, with COVID and stuff like that. I'm talking about the renewed skepticism coming out of the whole COVID mess that maybe none of this was actually necessary. Let's just get on Facebook and yell at each other. That'll make everything better. That'll be much better than being in fellowship with each other. It's always easier to help people build the walls. It's what false teachers are really good at: isolating you, again, surrounding you with the walls, and surrounding you with this. Then, then becomes this echo chamber of what you'd much rather hear. And so, let's. um, I know I'm 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 at war with the clock here, but let's uh, go through the rest of our text here. Really, what happens from here into the end of the chapter? is a, a repeated, repeated variation on what we've already read about this wall and what it's doing to the people and what God is going to do in response. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. There shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. Go on. And I will break down the wall that you've smeared with whitewash. So my hand's against you. This is what my hand's going to do. Bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, right? If a wall surrounds you and the wall caves in, what happens? You die. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what was missing, that I am Yahweh, the one who has spoken. Go ahead. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. So destroy the false teaching and the false teachers and i will say to you and i will say to you the wall is no more nor those who smeared it the prophets of israel who prophesied concerning jerusalem who saw visions of shalom peace for her when there was no peace declares the lord god so this is the language of catastrophe right absolute destruction of false teaching and false teachers god is saying i'm against these false prophets and their weak pathetic little walls and those walls are going to come down with great disaster i wonder Go ahead to the next one. I wonder if you are reminded of another familiar text. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But then he says, Whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and fell, and it fell and great was the fall of it. Ezekiel uses the same kind of language of foundation and collapse. Foundation and collapse. And this is why we're people of the book. You see what Jesus is getting at here and what Ezekiel is getting at is saying that what you believe about God and what he has said and what he has taught... if if I can use the old word, your doctrine is the house in which you live. And the walls of that house, if they are well-founded and right strong walls built on the words of God, will protect you when the storms and the trials come. Or they will collapse on top of you when those difficulties come. And so, so, if you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, my... My continual word to, to people who don't believe in Jesus um, during this, sermon, this series especially has been please be patient with us because the reason we plead with you to come to Christ is not because we want to make you look like us and think like us. The reason why we plead with any unbeliever saying come to Jesus now is because Jesus has told you and us that apart from His words, you're building a house around you that will one day ruin you. And it is, right now, chipping away at your soul. And so in contrast to the prophets who preach lies, we invite you to come and know the Lord, know the Lord God given to you in Jesus Christ who is Himself the truth. I mean, can you imagine it? In a world of fake news and conflicting reports and I don't even know what to believe anymore, lying authorities, that, that, that words have been given that never lie. A truth that never fades with time. A God who's not only truthful, but because of Jesus Christ, His hand is not against you. He's for you. He's for you. A God who's not only truthful, but because of Jesus is not against you. Rather, for you and everything. And against the false teaching that God's going to give you everything you want, the Lord Jesus gives you a promise so good, it's terrifying. And that is, I will always give you what you need most. And what you would have asked for if your knowledge was as exhaustive as mine. And while the world says, peace, peace, everything is fine, even though you feel in your bones everything is far from fine, there is a God and a King and a Savior who gives a peace that is stronger than your circumstances, a peace that endures and sustains and is not dependent on whatever's going on around you. And that's, the, that's the, right, the rightly founded wall that Jesus means to build up to surround you and all of his people. That when the storms come and all of their winds and anger blowing against that house, that it will not fall but will stand. And you too will stand until the very last day when he breathes new life into your dead body and you live forever. <laughs> and so as we wait for that day, Let us wait confident in this hope that our God is not against us, but is for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.